I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello, I'm Claire Mutimer. And I'm Susie Coulson. Welcome to The Backstory. In each episode, we'll be hearing about an experience that has happened to someone that shaped who they are. 30 minutes that remind us that everyone's dealing with something. So we're a documentary podcast, a docupod. Except you made that word up. Welcome back to part two of Penny Farmer's story, Dead in the Water. If you haven't listened to part one yet, then we really recommend that and you can have a good binge listen. So now we've given that heads up, we're free to have a quick recap of part one. Claire, what can you tell us? Yes, in part one, we heard from Penny telling us about what happened in 1978 when her brother went travelling to South America with his girlfriend and had joined a boat with a man called Silas Duane Boston and his two sons, who were 12 and 13 at the time. Penny's brother's girlfriend, Peter, was sending regular letters back to her family and then the letters stopped. Their bodies were later found, and they had clearly been tortured and murdered. There was one clear suspect right from the very beginning, and that was Silas Duane Boston, who was the skipper of the boat they were on. He was very evasive and went on the run up and down the western coast of America. It was 38 years later that Penny realised there might now be an effective way of tracing his two sons, with the help of Facebook, to find out the whole truth of what happened on board the boat and where Silas Duane Boston was now. Let's hear part two. You had the bolt out of the blue in 2015 that you, you needed to look up Boston and, and of course that the internet was going to be your biggest help. Tell me about that. So, uh, yes, yeah, so, so I came back from this dog walk with my mother and, you know, li- literally got my laptop out, got the file out uh, from the bureau and started looking for them. And it really didn't take that that much time to, to find out that... The, the whereabouts of the two sons. I could also see tantalisingly from his Facebook, um, I, I could see quite a lot from their Facebooks and I drilled right down, went back many, many years. Yeah, I could see did. that um, his mother, he, he that there had been some shooting in America and he's very anti-guns. Right. And the current gun laws in America. And he was uh, saying that his mother was shot at the age of 23 um, back in 1968, and and had been killed. So, right. and I thought, goodness, you know, he now he knows that how she died and that she was dead. Um, I could I could see that they were all living, you know, reasonably happy lives or as Facebook happy lives, you know. Um, yeah. 
And then I looked for Boston himself and I could see him. He was living in Sacramento. I looked for his one of his ex-wives. He had seven wives. Wow. Uh, so, so I um, looked for, for one of his wives who, who we had heard about back in 1979. And uh, I contacted both sons on the direct messaging service of Facebook saying, um, I, I think you know what happened on that boat. I'm not going to leave this matter alone. Please tell me and, and, you know, get in touch with me. Right. And I did that over the course of the weekend. I got no reply, so I just kept on bombarding them with messages saying, right. uh, please tell me, I'm I'm not going to go away. Then on the Monday morning, I rang up Greater Manchester Police, who the, ca- the case had been put in the hands of uh, for about 10 months back in 1978, and I rang up the cold case unit because I'd been watching various um, programmes on television, you know, about cold cases. I said, you know, please, please reopen the case. You know, you can't ignore this evidence. So we then, um, my older brother and my mother and I had a meeting a week later. That was the earliest they could see us. And we went in and uh, took the old file in with us. And they said they were whilst being very encouraging they said that they couldn't promise anything uh but we came away feeling quite you know d- delighted that at least they hadn't ignored us and that they were going to look into it incredibly it took five months for the sacramento police department and greater manchester police to be in in contact with each other which oh i mean God. in this day and age of instant communication i really don't think is acceptable especially no. bearing in mind boston age now i mean he by then he was 75 and you know he'd right. already been on the run all this time and i was literally tearing my hair out thinking you know what when is this case going to move forward but uh, eventually, yes, the, the two law enforcement agencies were put in touch via Interpol and uh, we were to discover in 2016 that Sacramento Police Department had Boston's case file on their desk at that time as we, I had my epiphany in the field. It's bizarre, but it, wow. was, it, almost, it wasn't just weeks or months, it was within days this had happened we were to find out that the whole reason that they were starting to look at Boston and had his case file opened was because in 2015 in the autumn of 2015 the FBI had launched this campaign to find the Golden State Killer now the Golden State Killer was a guy who in the 1970s and 80s had literally terrorised California. He had killed, I think it was 10 or 12 people and had committed 50 very serious rapes. And they decided that he had never been caught and they had told all the jurisdictions in California to look at all their old cold case files. Right. And to look for people with the same modus operandi as this guy was known to have had. I see. I.e. choosing couples, tying them up, Mm. torturing them, um, mentally playing mind games with them. Right. So he fitted. So so Boston very quickly rose to the top of the pile uh, as the... Golden State Killer prime suspect because of what was in the, the case file and obviously there were details of Chris and Peter's uh, murders right. in that case file. We were later to find out had been uh, told by by the two sons. So so we we, we at this point was, were incredulous that, that this 
should tally at the same time. You know, yeah. after 40 years of, of us being in the woods and, and in the dark about what had happened to them, it, it was like these pieces of a jigsaw were slowly coming together and it was all beginning to make sense. It was like slow motion, if you see what I mean. Yeah. And... Uh, one day um, in 2016, Martin Bottomley, the head of the cold case unit, uh, called us up to his offices in Greater Manchester and um, with the two boys' testimonies in front of him, Vincent Russell, the, the, the Sacramento police had by then interviewed them. Um, he said to my mother, how much of this do you want to know? And my mother, being the sort of person she is, said she wanted to know everything. Wow. So that afternoon... Many, many, many times all of us had imagined how they might have come to this end. But quite frankly, I don't think any of us had visualised it to be quite as horrific as it was. Right. And um, so basically the, the story of what happened on that boat, you know, began to be revealed. And that had been told to them by Vince and Russell. And Russell. Yes, the police had interviewed them independently. And the stories corroborated that, well, that afternoon, what, what had happened on the boat. And do you mind sharing that with us? Or? No, that's fine. Um, basically, what had happened was Boston, as we knew from Peter's letters, had been losing his temper regularly with the two sons. And one day, uh, when the boat was um, not very far anchored offshore, right. it, it was within sight of uh, the shoreline and people could see what had happened wow. he um started beating up the younger son russell and my brother chris had uh, interceded and pulled him off right. and he he was drunk at boston and he had ended up in the water very humiliated he was angry right. and uh, he stayed in the water for some time and treading water and right. apparently looking very menacingly at the four people on the boat, Chris right. and Peter and the two sons. Yeah. And my brother uh, shouted out to him, um, are you going to behave? If if you are, then you can come back on the boat. Right. And he obviously said yes, so my brother helped him back on board. When he got back on board, he told Vince that he was going to kill them for it, that he was humiliated and they deserve to die mm. so the next day um, he at, it was dusk and he t told Chris to go and pull up the anchor on the boat and as he did so he crept up behind him and bludgeoned him with a um, sort of like an old fashioned truncheon, a lead line truncheon they're, they're not, they were banned by then because the, the damage that they can do is too indiscriminate mm. So he bashed him over the head. Rince says that he could hear Chris's skull crack and there was a lot of blood over the deck of the boat. Um, he then got a fillet, a fish fillet knife, and he stabbed Chris in the sternum and the um, handle on the, the knife broke and the knife uh, fell away. Right. They, they didn't know where it had gone, whether it was on the boat or, the, or in the sea. So Chris, by this time, was pleading with him to stop. Peter came up from the, uh, from the, from the galley and Boston told her to get back down and threatened her with a spear gun. Then what happened was Vince maintains that they were tied up immediately. Russell says it was the, the following day, um, but then Boston said to uh, to Chris and Peter, um, 
you haven't paid me for the because they had agreed apparently at the outset of the trip to pay five hundred dollars each, which I think it it seemed even then to be an, a huge amount of that money. That seemed like a lot of money, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, but time. I, I think yeah. it was him covering up for the fact that he stole all their money. Anyway, Chris said it's right. fine. I'll pay you. Uh, you know, uh, don't worry. And they wrote out all their travelers' checks and hand or most of them and handed them over um and then over the course of the next three days he stripped them naked and he uh, bear in mind that by chris was very injured by this point right, and yeah. was fading in and out of consciousness not, not fully compass mentis i don't think pete was very hysterical as you would be yeah um and slowly over the course of three days bear in mind they were naked so totally um humiliated mm. uh, and you know uh, he um, he roped them up uh, first lightly, just just tying their hands, and then subsequently he tied them behind them and tied their legs together. Peter was put in the front cabin of the boat. I think one can guess probably what he did to her. And uh, Chris was put on the top of the deck, again, bound and roped up. And then on July the 4th, ironically, Independence Day, on the morning of as, as the sun came up, he had, he had prepared these huge motor engine parts, which he had got for ballast for the boat. Right. Uh, he had got some of these engine parts and roped them together, and he brought those up onto the top deck... And uh, by then he moved Pete up to the top deck as well. So the two of them were sitting there trussed up with ropes. He tied them to their limbs, the the engine parts, and then he um, placed plastic bags with ties around their necks but put holes in them so that they, he said that they wouldn't be able to see where the boat was going. He maintained still at this point that he was going to drop them off on shore and the engine parts were to slow them down from walking in. Uh. But, you know, and what he did was he teased them. He, he took them into the shore, uh, a deserted part of the peninsula. Right. Um, and then just as he said he was going to drop them off, he said that it wasn't close enough to the shore, it wasn't shallow enough. So he took the boat out further. Vince maintains that it was quite some way out. It was where the the sea started to go very dark. Right. So it was well out of out of land's reach. Yeah. Um, and it was then that he they were fully conscious, but he um, threw them overboard, mm. and obviously they drowned. And Vince and Russell watched the whole thing? They watched everything, and he tried to implicate them, apparently, and asked them to tie the bags around their necks, which they say they refused. Mm. Um, you know, he, he, he all the time tried to implicate them in order for them to be accomplices to his crime. And such detail, like, was that... You know, your mum asked for that detail, like, and did that... Was she pleased to know because she'd... Like, her mind had wandered so much, or... I don't know, like, was it easier for your dad not to have known because he'd already died? Or? Well, I, I think it's sad that dad never knew. You know, he, he went to the grave never knowing. 
and having these huge question marks over what did happen. And yeah, yeah I think that's really sad because, you know, I think he would have liked to have known that Chris died honorably. Yeah. Trying to defend somebody else. I mean, the, the awful thing was, you know, Chris, Chris the night that evening that um, Boston had um, bludgeoned him, he was complaining of having backache. And my brother being a doctor, he he said, well, I can give you a sedative for that. And he injected him with a sedative which made him sleep that night. Wow. Presumably Chris had the wherewithal in his medical bag to actually kill him. Yeah. Or, you know, put him out for a very long time. Yeah. And he didn't take that option. I think Chris being the character he was gave him the benefit of the doubt. I think he thought, you know, that in the morning he after he'd slept it off, maybe it was the drink because yeah. Boston drank quite a lot of rum. Right. He th- he just thought maybe it would all be okay. Yeah. But, you know, it raises a question really, do, uh, you know, d- do you turn killer before you're killed? And, of course, Chris was never a killer. He, no. he was a doctor. He saved lives, not killed. And I, I just don't think he could ever have turn killer I don't think he, he had it in him to to do it he, I think he always he was very trusting yeah he was hoping for the best outcome yeah, yeah, yeah I yeah. think so and and I think they were too far down the line once they knew just how evil Boston was they were too far into the trap to to turn back and so isolated on a boat in the middle of the water yeah. absolutely it's, I mean it's the most isolating place you can be isn't it so Dwayne Boston was arrested at this point? So then the Sacramento police, they, they knew Boston was guilty and the man for these murders. You know, the, the, the boys had given their evidence. and But what we didn't know up until that point was they, they had been going to the police over the, the last 38 years. They had been going to the police, but every time they went, they weren't believed or... The police in Sacramento did contact England, but because our file had gone missing, nobody connected the dots with us. They knew that Chris was a doctor. So had they just rung up the General Medical Council, they would have seen that Chris came off the the medical register in 1979 and had died and been murdered. So they could never join the dots. They never knew who to go to. You know, Vince, I think, rang up Scotland Yard one time thinking that it was a national police agency when it's not. You know, it only deals with London, or certainly at that time. So so nobody ever contacted Greater Manchester Police, certainly nobody ever contacted us. And and so the, the, the case never went forward because the, the two countries never were in communication up until my going back to GMP and flagging it up and saying, here's the case notes, here's the people that we need to talk to speak to Sacramento Police Department, please. And and so Boston came up on the radar for the Golden State killings. He was subsequently, in in January 2016, um, DNA'd for that, and it proved negative. So he wasn't the GSK. No. But they did know that he was incredibly evil, had the same MO, modus operandi, and they knew that this time he had to go away that they had to find a way of prosecuting him. And by then, of course, they knew from both Vince and Russell that he'd killed many other people as well. Russell says that he killed 33 people. (laughs) 
And were most of those after your brother had been killed, do you think, or before? Or? I think I think some before, some after. I think he thought that he was um, untouchable, as indeed he was for 50 years. He was on yeah. the run. You know, he, he was only arrested when he was 75. So, you know, he'd lived a life of freedom, just running up and down that coast. Whenever he became hot, as he called it, he would right. just disappear over the border. So finally they caught up with him, though, didn't they? So they did. In By then, in, in 2016, he was in a nursing home. And in December, they felt that they had enough, again, you know, to, to, to prosecute. And uh, they went to arrest him. Obviously, with the boys' testimonies, that they, they were convinced that they would win the case. And so they arrested him and and he was waiting a waiting trial? Yep, so he was arrested December the 1st, 2016, and uh, he was arrested and charged, and a pre-trial date of October the 8th was set. My mother and I were due to go over and give pre-trial evidence in early May, and, you know, were literally anticipating the, the journey. Um, when we discovered in early April that uh, he had... He, he was on dialysis anyway. Right. Um, but he told his doctors to withdraw all medication and food and liquids and uh, to hasten the end. And, um, yeah, he died April the 24th. And, uh, yeah, literally, I think it was two weeks away from us getting on that plane to go over and wow. eyeball him and to give evidence. Was there a part of you that had wanted to eyeball him, as you say? Absolutely. You know, I had an impact statement of what it had done to my family, all prepared. Um, yeah, I, I felt it was just another two fingers up at us, really. He wasn't going to give us that satisfaction of getting justice, you know, even, even though it was only small crumbs, really. But he, he wanted to extricate life on his own terms, and yeah, which he did. And yeah, we, we felt it was another punch in the stomach. So, I mean, he, he didn't die a, a free man. He was shackled. And I think he, from by all accounts, he had quite an uncomfortable demise. And obviously he knew, but whether he, I mean, I, I think he was a man without any conscience whatsoever. Mm. So I, you know, Russell, his younger son, who was his next of kin, went to visit him on his deathbed to ask where he had buried their mother. And he wouldn't even give him that satisfaction. You know, yeah. he he yeah. was he remained defiant, and apparently with a very menacing glare right to the very end. Vincent Russell must have had the most bizarre of upbringings. Like, what have you what have you learned about them? I went over to visit Russell, uh, along with visit the prosecution team back in July of two thousand and seventeen, just to thank everybody really, and it was. It was a bizarre meeting with Russell. <laughs> I didn't really know what to expect, as I'm sure he didn't with me either. It, right. it's, um, it was an odd meeting. Um, we embraced each other and it was quite emotional. He was very honest with me and, you know, we spent two days just talking about it and talking about events on the boat. Yes, he was very articulate, very intelligent, <laughs> you know, nice guy. Tell us about the relationship that Russell kind of endured with his dad, whilst he was alive because that must have been a very strange relationship to have with a essentially psychopathic father well it's interesting because the two boys they reacted sort of polar opposites vince vince's reaction to his father's evil 
was to, at the age of 16, to join the Navy and to cut himself off. Russell, I presume because he had seen somebody die, two people die defending him, took the view that he wanted to insert himself between anyone else that his father wanted to kill, of which I believe there were many. So he took the view that it was better to, to stay in touch with his father and to give him the things that he asked for, i.e. cars when he needed it and a bed to lie, you know, a couch to lie on as and when he required it. So I I think, you know, that they were both obviously tremendously uh, affected by what had happened. Yeah, Uh, of course they were. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But, you know, it's good if my book has any hope, it's good to know that they didn't become carbon copies of their father. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I'm forever grateful that the boys did speak up and, you know, that and that Russell agreed to meet with me. So you you didn't ever meet with Vince? No, I didn't. No, I have had some email contact with him. Um, but no, I never met with him. I, I think he was probably less wanting to meet me, which I absolutely understand. You know, it's not, not easy for them either. They're, they're both victims. They lost their mother as well when they yeah. were very young at the hands of their father. And... I can understand that. You know, ironically, the two families are now sort of connected by their father's evil. Yeah, it's a bizarre sort of Mm. relationship that you never really expected. No, no, two very different um, families from very different backgrounds. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Claire, I had no idea that the attack on Christopher and Peter lasted that long. It's really horrifying to hear Penny's account of it. The thing that struck me, though, was how Vince and Russell responded really differently, didn't they, to the knowledge that their father was a psychopath. Yes, and one chose one route of trying to stick around to be there to kind of prevent him from doing any more damage. And the other chose the other option of trying to avoid him altogether. Yeah, and of course, it's amazing. You know, you see it time and again, amazing that after such a bizarre childhood, they were able to be in any way normal. 
Yes, and I wondered what you made of the potential choices that Chris might have had. Mm. Um, obviously, with these kind of stories based on quite old recollections, it's hard to say, but it sounded like Chris had given Boston a sedative for his back and had the opportunity to drug Boston. Maybe he could have drugged him more or tied him up. You wonder if the boys would have helped them to overthrow their dad or not. I just don't know. I think it's one of those situations where you can never know how you'll react until you're in that situation. It's completely out of any ordinary experience. And I think sometimes what happens is that people just can't really comprehend what they're facing. You know, something dreadful is happening, but you're trying to rationalise it. You're kind of trying to understand it in a way that's normal for you. So... You know, it makes sense that Christopher would have thought that Boston had been drinking, but then he would later calm down because that's what happens in normal life. Yeah, I think you can well imagine, despite being hit so hard in the head, that Chris was used to seeing the best in people and had a trust in the decency of humanity and probably assumed it was the drink that was making him particularly violent. I think, yeah, when you've been fairly lucky to have a sort of reasonably normal life up to this point, you just can't imagine that level of evil and you assume... You can sort it and, you know, you won't have to take such drastic action as to kill before being killed. Yeah. Yeah, I remember somebody giving me advice years ago, which I passed on to my children, which is that if you feel threatened or if you feel as though a situation has turned bad, then you really don't have to be polite anymore. You know, you can shout, you can scream, fight, do whatever's necessary and and just realise that what is going on is really going on. I think that's half the battle sometimes. Yeah, sage advice. I, I must remember to tell my kids that. There's loads more detail in the book about Vince and Russell's lives, and I found that really fascinating. Their lives were highly unusual. So moving on from this to the more general theme of justice that this season is covering, it sounds a bit crass, but how important is it? It's often the battle that people are left with, isn't it, after a horrific crime on them or their family? Yeah, I think it feels like there can be no ending, no real resolution without justice. So next week we have a very different story and a very different search for justice. Yes, Lee Lawrence grew up in Brixton very happily until at the age of 11, his house was raided. The police were looking for his brother. They barged into his family home and one of them ended up shooting his mum. She was paralysed from the injury and Lee's life changed immediately. When his mum died many years later from a complication linked to her injuries, the opportunity for justice arose and Lee took it. Do listen next week because this is a remarkable story of justice. Here's a clip. And then I heard another bang. And this time, I jumped up and I just saw my mum on the floor. And I saw a policeman. At the time, I didn't realise it was a policeman. I just saw this man, this white male, standing over my mum with a gun in his hand. I'm really looking forward to hearing that one. Okay, time for our podcast recommendation. Claire, what have you been listening to this week? Uh, I discovered Love and Radio this week, and in particular, The Living Room which is a story of a kind of voyeurism, which is beautifully put together and really worth a listen. Um, In fact, worth a delve through that entire podcast. Um, I'm enjoying quite a few from there at the moment. Yeah, I've already listened to this one because you WhatsApped me very late at night, didn't you, to tell me that I had (laughs) to listen to it. I I have listened, I promise. And I think I reacted to it quite differently from you. I have to say it made me feel quite uncomfortable. So I would say... 
yes maybe if you have a, yeah I would say you know some people are doing podcast clubs rather than book clubs and I think this would be a good one to get friends to listen to and then have a chat about it afterwards because I imagine people will react differently to it as you and I did yeah so. definitely it's it's got you know it's got subject I mean in fact we had a discussion about it earlier didn't yeah. we? and it is one of those things that kind of just sets you on a sort of chatting kind of discussion definitely path, so yeah if for you, that if and you, actually a lot of love and radio ones have you know quite a kind of thing at the heart of them that you want to talk with somebody else about yeah and if you are doing a pod club um let us know we'd really like to hear about that i've got another one we don't normally do two recommendations but i've got another one that i'd like to mention just really because it relates a bit to penny's story it's it's uh, my perennial favorite the daily (laughs) this one is from may 2018 and it tracks the story of hunting down the golden state killer Ah, that you know penny obviously refers to yeah and what i really like about the podcast is that it's also a story of one man's just sheer bloody-minded perseverance uh which is the detective that tracked him down and he just did a an amazing job of not stopping just sticking with the case and he finally nailed the guy which was amazing so we'll put the link to both recommendations in the show notes definitely well that's all from us do share the part one and two it takes a couple of minutes to pop them up on your facebook page or twitter See it as your small nod of appreciation for all our hard work. Is that us sat with our begging hat out again? Exactly. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and also do rate us as it really helps to, or if you feel like leaving a review, that would be amazing. As long as it's a nice one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back next week. See you then. Bye-bye. We are The Backstory Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, at The Backstory Pod on Twitter. Search for The Backstory with Claire and Susie in your podcast directory. For sponsorship opportunities, or if you'd like to take part in a show, please contact hello at thebackstorypodcast.co.uk. The Backstory Podcast is produced by Tin Shared Productions.